Welcome to the Naked Ambition Podcast, where we speak with the people who are making an impact in tech, innovation, and design all over the world. This show is brought to you by the team at Naked Ambition. We are a design-led innovation company, partnering with some of the world's smartest companies to help them solve complex challenges and design new futures. I'm your host, Fiona Triarca. So welcome everyone to today's episode of the Naked Ambition podcast, where we speak with the people who are making an impact in tech, design, innovation and leadership all over the world. Um, And one of those people that we are super excited to have on the show today is Scott O'Brien, who is um, a bit of an expert in all things VR and AR, and he is the founder of the organisation Humans based out of Australia here. So we're going to be chatting about some trends in this area today. Welcome, Scott. Yes, thanks for having you, Fiona. It's It's a pleasure. Good, good. And um, so, Scott, today it'd be great to kind of kick off and just hear a little bit about your story. You're doing amazing stuff in the areas of AR and VR, particularly in the sports arena. Do you want to give us, like, give the audience a bit of an idea going back? How did you come into founding this cool organisation and have such an interest in this area? I think a lot of people's stories intergenerational and... Mine's a little bit peculiar. Uh, I have a great-grandfather, also by the name O'Brien, Edward H. O'Brien, and some of the people maybe over 50, 60 years old will know that name as the founder of Yellow Pages in Australia. Wow. Um, But initially Pink Pages because pink was the cheapest paper to print on, and then it became white and yellow, and then his company basically founded Census, uh, and then it all sold to Telstra, at least in Australia, but they still hang on to Fiji and Vanuatu and so on. So I think inter- intergenerationally, you know, and um, that said, you know, there was a, a little bit of the money that didn't pass through the generation. So, you know, I, I grew up out of town without electricity and water. Um, and at age three, I had the seed sewn. I had this little toy called a Viewmaster and uh, click, click this round wheel with the photos in it. And I'm seeing these relations on holidays in Vienna, New York, London, Paris, and so on. And I think, how, how do they do this? You know, it's like transporting yourself as a, for a kid, you know, to get that sense um, of being through the mind's eye transported to another place in time. So that was a heavy uh, part of where I'm at today. Uh, and then uh, I think, you know, when I was playing professional sport, uh, sitting on a couch in Oslo, Norway, missing home, and then saying, hang on, that is the rooftops of Sydney in this movie. Um, and that got me thinking. And then also thinking, you know, playing professional sport, I was living the fairy tale. And I was thinking, what, are, what can I be as passionate about after this? So th- then as watching The Matrix, I thought, well, why can't we watch sport and do e-commerce in this cyber construct? And so super naively, I hung on to this idea and I just kept going into the deep ends at digital media conferences, IT conferences, and, and just sort of bouncing it off, prepared to look stupid. And uh, eventually in 2006, uh, Wolf Blast combined with the Ashes Cricket Test and did it like a virtual cricket stadium where you could do voice to text, uh, you know, and this was sort of pre-people doing big Facebook campaigns and everything. Um, and you could choose the Australian team or the England team, uh, take a seat in this virtual stadium, and then you could um, win tickets uh, and, and then, of course, lo and behold, in, in earlier this year, January this year, the pink test raised $3.1 million off mm. selling the virtual seat. So sort of in, interesting how that concept's come full circle. But that's just a small sliver of the idea I had because uh, as an athlete, I knew that value of the point of view on the court, on the field and so on. And you can only really get that if you 3D reconstruct things on the fly. And that ain't easy. So I, I had to navigate a lot of um, dark areas uh, of, of knowledge for me and have them lit up. And ironically, it was one of my amateur sports friends that was lecturing industrial design at University of Western Sydney um, that had seen me uh, sort of introduce like a Macy's parade. So that's one other stepping stone. I, I did something like a Macy's parade in 2007 in Sydney. So we had the streets lined bigger than 
they were for the Olympics um, in 2007, uh, like a Thanksgiving Day parade. And then a couple of years later, I worked on uh, online retailer. I introduced that with a, a guy that owned the event in the Gold Coast. And that was the second biggest internet retail event in the world. And all these things in a blender, together with my amateur sports buddies saying, hey, what do I do with this augmented reality thing I'm getting my industrial design students to do, um, came together and, aha, that's it, you know. At the online retailer event, IBM were one of the sponsors and they, they were saying it just can't be picture price, picture price, picture price anymore. You've got to give consumers a, a playful something, uh, something to feel like maybe they own this product already before they've hit add to basket, uh, add to cart. So um, when I saw this within 10 seconds, I sort of had it in my mind, okay, I, I need to quit this job and focus on, on this magic and uh, that overlap of magic, psychology and technology. And, um, you know, lo and behold, six months after we made that monumental decision in um, uh, a pub just nearby Sydenham train station, uh, we'd worked with six of some of the you know, world's biggest companies, so McDonald's, HSBC, Schneider Electric and so on. And then, boom, um, a huge secret project that uh, led us towards fast-tracking making augmented reality glasses in 2010, and we did so off what is comparably a minuscule budget compared to what a lot of the big tech companies have uh, today. Um, and, but, you know, it's funny because naively, uh, we wrote a business plan saying we'll bootstrap out of creative services, this hardware company making glasses. And the glasses that we made in 42 days and nights from traveling the world and bringing some of the world's best talent together, um, is, was more sophisticated uh, than a couple of the glasses that have launched this week from some well-known <laughs> names. So we're pretty proud of it. But one thing is, of course, to get these things out into the market, not just to do secret projects. So, you know, here in Australia, things are changing. We're, we're starting to connect to the world a bit more effectively. And, um, you know, as the saying goes, what an exciting time to be alive. <laughs> Wow, what an intro. Oh, my God. How do we even begin on that? I want to come back to your opinion on the Wayfarers because that's so interesting. So it's like something that you were playing with in 2010. Now we're 2022 and they've just launched this week. But, I mean, talk us through. So what? tell us about that professional sports career and then that leap into seeing the opportunity you know, to be doing this, to really be like allowing people to feel like they are part of that experience? What did that look like and what were some of the kind of early developments there? Getting into that sport came from uh, maybe several years of frustration. Late teens, I was very injured and I missed the normalised political pathway uh, that you have um, to get into an institute of sport squad, which then invariably, uh, you know, leads to a national team because that helps the the National Association uh, secure more funding from the government. So because I was injured in, in those years, uh, I had to find a wild card way to go about uh, this. So, so my initial sport was field hockey. Uh, I played every sport from the country, you know. So um, I, uh, and, you know, luckily also from the country, I, I, got, I was gifted uh, from my forward-thinking parents who were super laggards, but they, they bought a Commodore 64. So I wasn't just outside playing sport, but I was actually coding on cassette tape. I, I can't believe it uh, as I look back today. But um, in in sort of coming to the point of late teens, early 20s, looking to focus on field hockey, get into the Sydney Olympic squad and so on, I was sort of always going to be on the periphery. And I thought I have to find something that gives me that edge. Um, how can I bring something innovative to the sport? And uh, sort of on a trip to Sydney, just happened to walk by a sports festival, Darling Harbour, and here were these Finnish and Swedish people playing this crazy sport called Inabandi or Salabandi in their land, but in English it's called floorball, floor and ball. And it's like ice hockey. And I said, this looks pretty good. I'll give it a go. I was in jeans and like a black shirt and whatever, but I couldn't help myself. I just love it first sight. And um, it had the sort of hip and shoulder contact like AFL. It had strategy like basketball um, and, and some of the skills and elements of ice hockey without the maliciousness 
Um, and it's just, it just was perfect. And I was just in love with it straight away. Um, and, you know, within 12 months, I thought, wow, we could go to the world champs. I'll start a, a national team. So um, we got sponsorship from Qantas and PlayStation and all these people. And we, just we, a floorball, we like something yeah, yeah. that's not even in Australia, yeah. Yeah, and, and we so, went on a tour through yeah. Finland, uh, then the world oh. champs in Czech Republic, and the people following us. We, we had uh, such an incredible following from Finland. People just on the spot decided, I'm going to be part of the Australian cheer squad. And they travelled with us on almost zero notice. Um, we're, you know, in a way, the Jamaican bobsled team. Uh, and uh, so we got to the Czech Republic and the crowds and the atmosphere were just off the hook. And it's like, how has Packer and Murdoch not heard about these sports yet? And perfect for TV, perfect for schools and um, social competitions and, and so on. And uh, beautiful TV product. And, and so, you know, that was 98. And so then I said, this is it. I, I, I'm moving permanently away from the field hockey. I'm taking on this sport. And so out of the rejection, in a way, of the pathways of um, field hockey, I, I found floorball and, uh, uh, you know, no regrets at all. And I, I lived a fairy tale in Scandinavia five years, in fact, sort of back and forward. And um, with that, I did about 10,000 hours coaching in schools, universities, prisons, juvenile justice centres, and uh, it was incredibly fulfilling. And regrettably, I had to come to a point where I was up against $30 million AFL budget. And uh, I was doing handsomely, you know, off my own bat, 150, 200K a year, coaching this sport in all these different places. But I thought, if this is the scale, I need at least bring back a million to the sport. Um, so I have to take a year off to do that. What kind of job can I do that gets a million? And I haven't completed a degree. <laughs> so um, I found a fellow who had the rights to like a, a Thanksgiving Day parade in Sydney. And um, they failed to sell a dollar for three years. Um, I'd cut my teeth on a sport no one heard about. And I wear the pride and notoriety of um, securing a, a betting sponsor first time for a sport in Australia. Uh, um, so, so oh, you started that. We can blame you for that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so that was Centibet. And um, yeah. so Centibet, uh, uh, you know, Jared Duffy was the CEO and they had some links to Scandinavia. So they bet on floorball games. So there's some synergies there. Um, and I'll never forget our first introduction to Australian TV. Uh, Tony Squires was hosting a show called The Fat, uh, mm -hmm. a bit of a sports panel. And um, Jared Duffy was a guest on there. And, uh, and, and Tony Squires has said, well, you know, you can bet on the prime minister, the elections. And, and, and what is this, this thing called floorball? What is, you can bet on anything, the floorball? What is that? Is that some sort of Danish pornography? Uh, and, you know, it was close. It was from Scandinavia, but, um, you know, for Australians, like no one had really heard of it. And, mm. um, and, and you know, within a few years, we've managed to, to, to get it pretty well known in a, a few centers and and like i i used to live in newcastle so it was actually played in most schools there um but uh through scandinavia it's it's the main sport it's bigger than soccer mm -hmm. and ice hockey for participation in just like 30 years of uh being introduced as a sport so um so that really helped me cut my teeth uh looking at you know uh sponsor fits uh marketing fits and uh innovation um, in fact, I ended up making the equipment and clothing lines. Uh, it, was a, it was a fun chapter, but it very much prepared me for, you know, what was required uh, for, for innovative tech and building teams. Um, so in 2010, I guess that came to fruition and I got to build uh, probably one of the best teams ever on an ARVR project um, to deliver what we did in 42 days. Is, uh, people don't believe it, but I've got the, the video evidence we did it. And, um, yeah, you mentioned, you know, some comments on uh, the Ray-Ban uh, Wayfarers and so on, which are not augmented reality glasses. They're more, um, well, recording slash spy glasses, some people might say. But, I mean, it's good that fashion's mixing with tech on the face in a sense in that way. Um, but, uh, you know, it does show that some of the big tech companies are a little more reserved of, of coming out with um, – you know, more features, more functions, uh, 
you know, in the day Steve Jobs said about iPod, it's a thousand songs in your pocket. Mm. Well, um, the real day to celebrate is when we've got a thousand apps on our face. And at the moment, the people wearing reading glasses have just got one app on their face. As they look back at themselves five years from now, they think, how do we do that? You know, Mm -hmm. as we look at the mobile now for navigation and all sorts of things, how do we organise meeting up with each other and all this? But um, we'll have that same sort of wave of uh, how did we do it, Uh, you know, when we become accustomed to having glasses that that actually have more apps than just recording what's in front of you. Yeah, which, I mean, is exciting, but I'm sure there are you know, there are greater leaps coming. I think it's something you actually posted on LinkedIn just the other day that there's sort of been this kind of lag when, you know, we were all anticipating where virtual reality was going to take us. You know, even 20 years ago, it felt like it was just around the corner and then it's kind of been limping. And I remember when Oculus Rift was released and we thought, you know, okay, this is everyone's going to be getting them for Christmas. And it's sort of like it's it's like there and then it's not and it's there and it's not. Like you said, it's a really exciting time to be alive. What What are you excited about? Like what do you think is really coming? Are we on the edge of something now on the, of this kind of mass adoption, I suppose, of these kinds yeah. of technologies ever in on the daily? Yeah. You know, one of the choking points to deliver high-end experience has been bandwidth and 4G, whilst it's mm-hmm. good, is, is you yeah, know, not quite good enough for really um, high demands, such as streaming photoreal holographic telepresence. So I sort of joke now we're on 2D Zoom. Some people refer to Brady Bunch. Um, I refer often to a, a prison window conjugal visit. Uh, we're sort of trapped behind this glass and uh, with augmented and virtual reality, photoreal 3D live streaming, we can be in the same scene. We could be... Um, around a campfire we could be sitting on a beach having this podcast and so on mm. so um it's just uh, exponential multiples uh of, of gains in human to human uh, communication versus the 2d trap uh that we're in at the moment so um you know jerry seinfeld uh used to sort of joke about um relationships and 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 what breaks them it's not and he used to relate it to the uh, vending machine and it's not the first time you try to push the vending machine over to get the little lolly that's just hanging there um it takes a few goes and so vr you know and ar for that matter and any r any reality i like to say reality agnostic rather than the acronyms um so across all the realities um you know it takes two or three goes and i think we're just about there now um you know, we, we've got buses driving past us in the city uh, with Telstra saying we've got 75% coverage. We've got mm. Optus claiming they've got better coverage and, and better speeds. Uh, we've got Starlink serving southern New South Wales and northern Victoria now with exceptional speeds, um, which fits into, you know, one of the things I'm most excited about, and that is the importance of augmented virtual reality uh, as important, if not more, than road, rail, and airports. Um, and thereby the next step is, well, if we've got this face-to-face communication that we can do in a very authentic way that uh, you know acknowledges the conduits of trust, loyalty, persuasion, bonding, then why do we need to live in the city? Uh, we can live somewhere where it's more human, less concrete under our feet, uh, more sand, more grass under our feet, more time in nature, um, more time with our children, our parents and or um, neighbours and, and, you know, uh, immediate community rather than drive time FM, keeping us on the highway for an hour or two. Well, hats off, there are some funny people on drive time morning and afternoon shows. Good luck to them and and I appreciate their humour forever and a day. But what's even better, um, you know, is is more time... uh, as a human, less time mm. behind a wheel on bitumen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is so exciting as well. And I love you talking about that, you know, the humanity and the connection and the trust. And they're all things actually be good to dig into in more depth as well. But on this, you know, this moment that we are in at the moment, you know, now we have a lot of that time back 
a lot of us are working, yeah. you know, yeah. this this whole remote re- revolution and, you know, we're all in the thick of it, which we know, obviously, there's mm-hmm. a lot of freedoms that now we've got a lot taken away, but <laughs> freedoms in yeah. terms of time that we've got, you know, yeah. over the last 18 months. Um, yeah. Do you reckon it's going to accelerate the need for and the, the appetite, I suppose, for these different versions of reality? Not a question. And yeah. uh, in a way, remote is a trigger word for me. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I like to, um, I guess, challenge convention on a, a couple yeah. of things from the bias that I've had. Yeah. And um, so one is remote, one is, I guess, deriving from human-computer interaction. Uh, so firstly, remote. Um, for me, as I look at it, when we travel away from home to work, that other place is remote. Home is home. Um, so the dialogue at the moment is you're working from home, that's remote. And, of course, the boss would say that or, of course, the ASX CEO would say that. But, no, sorry, mister, mostly mister, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, remote is when we have to leave the front door. <laughs> and if we look at the world that way, then we'll understand what taxes, what psychological taxes, what environmental taxes uh, we're paying, even though they may or may not be official taxes, what's the tax on our life, the quality of life, our spirits, um, having to leave the front door, leave our family at home for the majority of the day, um, these sort of things. So I think that it's important to flip that narrative and look at anything out the front door is remote and home is home. Um, and the other one uh, with the uh, essence of it's sort of philosophical in a way um, slash technical is, is uh, the device definitions of what's augmented and virtual reality. So, um, you know, 500 million people a day are using mobile phones on their face. I call it monetizing identity, vanity and ego uh, with, you know, all the funny little things you can do on your face um, as, you know, cameras are smart and they understand your facial features and so on. And that's a good sort of soft cultural apprehension onboarding to the technology. Um, and, and so that's what most people have kind of experienced with augmented reality, even though 99% of people don't know it's called augmented reality, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but in um, mobile, you know, a lot of this is being sold as the AR opportunity. And then you get the bricks on the face and a lot of people mm. call that thing, you know, uh, almost you know, like this blindfolded VR experience. Yeah. Um, so to me, uh that might help manufacturers define a category and call it vr but to me it's all augmented reality so in the human computer uh design interface thinking we've got all these sensors the five main sensors that aristotle got us to focus on and then all the submodalities, which have been marginalized in a lot of ways uh, for good and bad reasons um and so yeah sure the virtual reality headsets sort of hijack our site, um, but they don't hijack every other sense. We've still got this other information coming into our brain of what's happening in the real world. So for me, that's just augmenting your human experience. Mm. If we wanted to get really technical, you know, on that end, um, was, it, was his name Jake in uh, Avatar who mm. put himself in a tube and then became this blue creature? Mm. Um that is full VR. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's interesting how language then helps shape people's understanding and yeah. critical thought or cognitive dissonance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I never really thought about it like that as well, but it is just like the labels that are put on it that make sense to productize something, to market it, yeah. to sell it, because it is a com- pretty confusing area. You know, still oh, yeah. for a lot of people, it's like it's they more think about the product first rather than the actual experience that the thing mm. is going to deliver or could it deliver. Can you talk yeah. to us about, like, paint us a picture of what are some of the experiences that potentially or that could be possible in the next couple of years, like particularly because I know you guys at Humans are big on esports 
you know, it's about like virtual stadium experiences and that's probably something that's super topical as well at the moment given, you know, people's obsession with sport <laughs> but, you yeah. know, not being able to access it right now is so hard. So I guess sport, you know, education is another area that you're really big on. I'd love to really hear your perspectives about, you know, what what what's going to happen there? What could we expect to see? What would you like to see? Yeah, well, you know, speaking of the full starts earlier, uh, one of the big issues for the VR industry was you had a lot of programmers punching out programmer stuff. So you can expect wild roller coaster rides and zombies. Um, so in a way, there's no two other use cases that could turn people off VR for life than having those as their first experiences. Um, the zombie speaks for itself because you actually can give people PTSD in a, in a sense if you're not careful. So you need to really be cautious at how you onboard people and design. Um, and then because, you know, people believe the experiences they're having in VR are real. So, um, so you know, if you're facing them with a zombie, awesome. exciting, it can be yeah, embodied and real, yeah. So, and then with the roller coaster, the, it's a neurophysiological 101 um, that most unfortunate programmers didn't really get a grasp of. But if your eyes are telling you you're going up and down and around really fast, and your middle ear is saying, no, um, you're sitting in a chair, mate. <laughs> um, your brain will have a divorce and you'll have carrots coming out of your mouth. And <laughs> it's the reality of, you know, why there's been so many sort of VR failed people collapsing and falling over, um, even though, you know, they're, they're on flat ground and so on because their brain's just um, gone through this crazy conflict mm. from getting information from two different sources that totally conflict and uh, knock them off balance. And um, so unfortunately, that was an explanation of around the 2016 to 2019 false start where it went from blazing hot to like a, a VR winter. Um, but of course, then in, in the last year, it's really started to bounce back as uh, I guess more VR and AR companies have gone um, to niche enterprise use cases and the case studies uh just profound and you know some of the best are out of education where you know you can get kids to have six times better focus so in a day and age of screens and adhd and all the medications and blah 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 um having focus six times that's incredible and not only that you know you, you're seeing statistics where for example um early teens learning astrophysics over uh say four weeks i think it was um Cohort A, cohort B, A's got the normal teacher and normal teaching 2D resources. Cohort B, they're C minus students, uh, and, but they're given the spatial, as in you can walk around and discover and play and interact. They're given that VR experience. Over four weeks, C minus students overtook the A plus um, by above 20%. And then they got tested two weeks later for retention. The gap was even greater. C minus students overtook the A, a plus even further. So, um, you know, with that as some backbone and there's some pretty basic neuroscience uh, reasons why ARPR has this unfair advantage over 2D. Um, and, and we've seen a lot of these great statistics play out into the e-commerce world as well. Um, and so then I have a bias for sport uh, in that it was my past profession, but with that, as we know, as has been the strategy for, for different media leaders in the past, um, sport is a great way to tap in to other people's networks, other people's structures, and it's a soft culture, low apprehension way to learn a new behaviour to get past some of the technical fric frictions. Um, and, of course, you know, if you follow a favourite team, they're playing once or twice a week, uh, so there's some regularity in it, and it's highly social. Um so it's just got all those factors. And so I guess primarily what I'm interested in, as indicated by our company name, which took me about a thousand goes to come up with, um, it's a mash of immensely human because I think, you know, many people uh, through pressures of paying a mortgage or whatever other reasons have sort of forgotten what it means to be human and then have also looked at technology as reducing humanity. Mm. But uh, it can have a role in helping us refine it and embellish it, I, I think, um, and and have more time face-to-face, -face, as I was describing, if we have better tools to work from home, 
to avoid that remote out the front door, then, uh, you know, it can actually give us more um, face-to-face time in effect, like a task that might take an hour. Well, ARVR can take 10 minutes. Um, uh, a a tra- training course in TAFE that takes three years, that could take three months. Mm. To, to design a helicopter could take five years. In ARVR, it's proven it can take actually five months for an equivalent or better result. So there are just so many wins to be had. And so with sport, um, human endeavour, it writes its own script. It's social. Um, it's a honeypot for brands. It's a beautiful conduit to e-commerce. It has telehealth sort of adjacency, um, beautiful education adjacency. And the other thing is, I mean, um, you know, Steve Jobs was famous for taking his walking meetings. So, you know, there's some studies if you sit for 20 minutes or more, mm-hmm. your brain starts to dull a bit, which is why we might change positions in our seat or like you are. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm standing at the moment. Yeah. Um, I try to do most of my day standing and, uh, and, and, and the brain lights up differently, mm-hmm. um, more, more open to learning, more, uh, yeah, perhaps more social in a sense as well, just as we're moving around. And, um, and head-up displays will uh, enable more of this. Mm. Uh, and, of course, uh, I find it interesting that, you know, as I grew up, we saw TV ads of Norm in Life Be In It, mm. sitting down, <laughs> yeah. throwing his belly, uh, you know, and watching sport, merely watching sport and uh, on the telly, which we used to call the idiot box. And then, of course, as more and more mobiles got into our hands and we crossed the streets without looking up cars going by, you know, we, we would call a look at these zombies. So mm. idiot box and zombies have been associated with these two huge evolutions of technology. And so when we have glasses on our face, well, my opinion is at least our heads will be up. And from our designs that we did 10 years ago and from more recent ones, mm. the design bias will be to have the clear views of you know your, your time and space um in a way that's safe and uh in in moments that you consciously declare uh you know you're not having cars going by and things like that that's when you can have more of the graphic overtake your view mm. um so i think we're heading into an immensely human future yeah. um which can then get us more time with sand under our feet, grass under under our feet. Um, And with that sort of more compassion, more empathy, uh, better population distribution. So at the moment, you know, we've got things like Greater Sydney Commission, where they're talking about three cities in one big city. It's still a mega city, Mm -hmm. and I believe with mega problems. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's hard to avoid. And so I think a few years ago, Melbourne, for a stretch of 10 years or whatever, won um, the world's most livable city. And it was ironic that its own institution, RMIT, did a study that the most livable city can't be more than a population of 1 million people. Mm. So what I would love to see in Australia, as we anticipate going from 25 million to 50 million in the next decades, is that we create brand new cities from scratch. And this time we do it, um, you know, without screwing up 99% of things. (laughs) You might get your wish, actually, with all of a lot of the studies that are going on about new neighbourhoods and new meaning of community and stuff. I think there's some exciting stuff happening there. Yeah. Um, What, um, yeah, so what uh, this, a lot of this work that you're doing, particularly in the area of, yeah, coming back to the stadiums and the sports, like what would an Mm. experience like that be and also what is i have to ask what is the metaverse <laughs> yeah absolutely. can you tell us well i'll start with that um yeah. I, I should say I, i'd start with explaining um no one can really say what the metaverse is it's something that will evolve yeah. and then maybe it's as definable and dissectable as consciousness to be honest um you know the perhaps strict technical definition of it for many people is that it's a totally interoperable uh, VR, AR, whatever uh, landscape um, where, you know, not necessarily one company owns or winner takes all, 
as as some people fear in the dystopian Hollywood scripts. And of course, um, a lot of books and like Ready Player One and so on, a lot of the books were written at a time sci-fi writers were paid to be dystopian because that's what the Hollywood so- studio owners thought was returning the biggest buck. Um, but it's interesting about three to five years ago, these sci-fi writers got together after already having made a good living. And uh, at a convention, they said, well, screw this dystopian thing. We got enough money now. Let's start writing utopian future technology stories. Um, so, you know, in a way, Star Trek was that. And uh, I can't say I'm a, a Trekkie. I mean, I read a few good quotes and I, I love some of the meaning behind it. Um, and the social good progressive thoughts and scripting woven in uh, that has parallels to, to the real world. But one day uh, in the few years I was living in the States, 2013 or 2016, I actually thought, I'm in Vegas and there's a Star Trek convention on, I'm going to go. <laughs> and it was amazing. There were some of the most beautiful people and so clever people I've ever met. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, the metaverse, I think, it, it's quite intangible in a way and it's evolving. Uh, mm. But of course, there's more than $5 trillion a company now trying to be the one mm. or at least a significant part of it. Um, is it like living your life in virtual reality? Is that what we're talking about here? Or what's like the actual kind of definition? So, yeah, so day-to-day mm. thinking, mm. Uh, you know, you might get up and have your favourite cereal or porridge or, or something and then, you know, usually your thoughts are um, get yourself ready, get family ready and or leave home for work or work from home or what have you. Um, lunch breaks, go for a walk uh, and, and, and you've got your routine of the day. So with augmented and virtual reality and IRL, as many of us call it in real life, um, I think what will happen pretty soon, and I think within 24 months, many of us will duck in and out of the different realities. And so in a way, the winner of this, uh, or one of the defining characteristics of winners uh, heading towards the metaverse will be those that have eyewear that do both AR and VR and pass through total reality mm-hmm. as well. So you can easily just dip in and out. Just like if you're in a swimming pool, you can backstroke, freestyle, butterfly, you know, it's just like you choose your stroke for whatever race it is you want to race and, yeah. um, and, and be able to switch on a moment's notice. Uh, and, you know, like with our sports application, um, so, so in a way to segue to, to that, uh, so at the moment what we accept uh, with watching sport is uh, we go to the stadium, we pay 20 to $100 a ticket, and we get to sit in one seat. And that's been enhanced in the last 20, 30 years by big video replay boards that sit 50 to 100 metres away from our eyes. And the content on it is decided by mm. some director guy um, who thinks he can cover what most people want to watch. But I question if he or she or whoever gets that right um, uh, because... Oftentimes you ask 50,000 people uh, a question and you can get 50,000 different answers. So uh, then the other alternative to watch sport, of course, is on TV. And we've gone from like one black and white camera to one color camera to 20 to 30 cameras in HD and some in 4K now. Um, Still, you're sort of getting a, a producer or a director to cut, cut, cut every three to eight seconds to compensate for you not being there in the 3D reality. And still, they're directing it. You're not choosing those cuts and zooms and so on. So uh, the alternative that we provide is that with an ARVR tool, whether it's a mobile or eyewear, you have the power to not just watch from any seat in the house, the best seat, the worst seat, whatever seat in the house, so it's almost as though you've bought all 50,000 seats. But better than that, much better than that, is that you're going to be able to, or you already can with our um, demo app, uh, which is you know uh, not publicly available now, but within the year it will be, you're able to walk across 
that boundary line, the white line. So um, you could be on the court watching the next Australian Open tennis final on the court uh, as the serve comes over your shoulder, you know, <laughs> as though you're a doubles player, but you're not. You're there like Patrick Swayze and you go. The ball girl, love it. And or, you know, you could be on the middle of the pitch at the mm. next cricket match and uh, in the football watch, uh, you know, the Socceroos uh, and the Matildas score from the penalty spot um, as they qualify for World Cups and, and so on. So um, it's, yeah, access absolutely all areas. And it's funny, you know, when we even talk to some of the world's top broadcasters, they think, so you're going to be able to watch right on the sideline like, Jack Nicholson watching the Lakers and so on. So you need to take your thinking a bit more than that. So, um, you know, going back to the inspiration of the Matrix, uh, you know, what, if anything, is possible type of thinking. This is so cool. So you've got an app now in development. Are you guys looking at hardware as well or have you got an opinion on, you've talked a little bit about, you know, the, the glasses that we're going to need to wear. Like, is that still where we are? in terms of how we're going to need to engage or how is some of that evolving in terms of you know, what we're actually going to need? Yeah, so, um, you know, for mine, the path of Apple or Facebook or anyone uh, releasing the kind of eyewear that I think should be in market has been a bit too slow. Um, you know, HCC's, you know, done a good job uh, and of course you know there's there's other things there like quest and recently uh tiktok bought uh pico um so you know it's it's good to have three big ones in the race but there'll be more for sure uh, but yeah they're, they're not quite there with a device uh, that is accessible is scalable um and can as effectively go across realities i think there is something coming though um, I'm sort of, uh, you know, I guess keeping my eye on some IP uh, that's coming together in different directions. Yeah. And uh, so I feel in the next one to two years, we, we will see that. And it will be like, yeah, you know, this has been sort of proposed before. It's come and gone. But it's, it's like the Jerry Seinfeld joke with the mm -hmm. vending machine. It just takes a few wobbles and then eventually, boom, it'll just happen overnight. And Cheers. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, uh, it's important to identify where is it best bundled. I mean, at one stage uh, I was being asked back in 2011, the year after we, when my old company first made these glasses, um, how could we bundle AR glasses in with buying a brand new car? And then the car owner could, uh, you know, instead of doing their two-hour onboarding for this sophisticated oh. sports car, they could just put on the glasses and get all the instructions without having to book in and, and – um, and then if something happens under the hood or they just want to be proud about it, you know, they can put on the glasses and it would identify everything under the hood. So I thought that might be one of the ways, but also I got to see how a holographic fishbowl of a sports stadium mm. could uh, be shared by 40, 50, whatever thousands of people at the same time socially. And, um, you know, I got to work with Olympic creative directors in that project and so on. And I, I've sort of never let go of it. And I've got the template for that sort of thing. And I'm um, pretty excited to see that happen. But just mm -hmm. as much as I talk about top-down, elite-level sport and Olympic ceremony-type level entertainment, um, the virtual stadium uh, sort of thing uh, where it can be visualised photo reel and it could be modularised and personal, hyper-personalised, mm -hmm. which means any local football team who – let's face it, with COVID, you know, have really struggled. Um, and, you know, without kids and even adults socially kicking a ball around or hitting a ball around, um, life can be pretty mundane for, for many of us that need that movement, yeah. most of us do. So um, I think this will be an important tool uh, for them to have up their sleeve as a sort of a, a sponsorship asset. Mm. Um, and, and with that, you know, be able to, um, I guess, overcome that problem that's occurred over the last five to 10 years where uh, a lot of local sports groups have lost funding from national franchise type uh, companies because things have, you know, sort of gone back up to head office and 
and then the local clubs have sort of missed out um, on on some of those funding opportunities. So, uh, and then of course, you know, in the state of New South Wales, we've had massive stadium budgets, 800 mil of stadium upgrade budgets, which yeah. at first were going to go to the city stadiums and country felt left out. So there's ways and means we'll be able to uh, introduce like centimetre accurate tracking on uh, local fields and courts, which basically will help turn them into ARVR arcades in the mm -hmm. open air and sort of esportsify even local sports. Wow. Love that merging of these real life spaces or even underutilised spaces. Yeah. Yeah, in Absolutely. rural towns that then can be utilised in a completely different way. That's like really thinking about it um, from a completely different perspective. I, I mean, this may, this question also might be linked to some of that thinking about, and I know this is another area that you're interested in and um, I see you talk about a little bit, is um, telepresence, holographic telepresence. And it's another one that's probably related to um, 5G but I did, I did go to a conference a couple of years ago and the speaker was, was a hologram from Florida where he was into Sydney at the time and I thought, okay, this is all going to happen. I think we started talking on LinkedIn initially and I was sort of excited about even in the work that we do, could we be, you know, in multiple locations and doing something like that. Is that as a trend, is that something that you see becoming more mainstream? You know, what has sort of slowed some of that adoption? Again, is it... Is it you know, the, the commercial costs or the 5G factor? Yeah, so um, first of all, um, like with some other jargon in this space, yeah. it's, it's sort of been bastardised, uh, to be honest. Yeah. And the word hologram actually uh, technically means a remote intersection of a particle of light. There are some larger companies guilty of using this term sort of incorrectly um, because maybe the PR department Besides, it's just easier to talk to people. We, you know, uh, we can't make up a new word, or if we do, you know, we have to invest heavy in it and blah blah blah. So, hence, you know, even the AR VR has become XR and MR and all these other Rs. And people in the industry, are, what the hell? Just, you know, accept that it's called AR and VR, and we'll keep investing in uh, educating people. This and so, what it, it has actually also gone to a, a court case because the people who can do that remote intersection of particle of light, which may become a thing in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, um, say, we do that and you're, you know, cramping our style. <laughs> so um, what's come out of that is that the nuance, it might sound ridiculous, but the nuance of calling it holographic, so hologram-like, um, mm. is acceptable. Okay. And so... Um, uh, you know, I suspect what you may have seen is um, a 2D video projection into a clear uh, sort of perspex um, uh, and or, you know, vinyl. Mm. And, um, and this comes from around about the year 1453, where an Italian theatre projectionist uh, was able to create these ghostly images on stage by it's like bouncing. the illusionist stuff is it yeah that movie H yeah hence the term smoke and mirrors that's mm -hmm. where it comes from and so when people are playing a trick on you so they're all the smoke and mirrors that's where it comes from 1453 and it's around the same year as the gutenberg press came about um and and that's an incredible well, both of them are incredible stories of innovation so um yeah i think uh, with that technology it's had a role to play um are you still getting my volume by the way yeah i'm getting your volume yeah it just went a little bit patchy there but that's all right keep one of the again. airpods ran out ah <laughs> oh, that's it yep cool uh, unfortunately yep. the airpods go for 50 odd or whatever minutes <clears throat> so um yeah yeah so from the pepper's ghost theater projection trick um there's then been some other techniques to simulate a human presence um but now, like being able to use a mobile phone uh, to view the world through the camera, but then superimpose a human, says, ah, there's something in this. So definitely there'll be some snackable experiences this way. But when we're wearing glasses, that's when it will really, really come into its own because it will be hands-free, effortless, 
you'll be able to express yourself with your hands. So unfortunately now, like the webcam mm. um, doesn't give me so much head to toe. And it, it's actually an important facet of communication. I mean, I could do the whole podcast with my hands like this. And it's part of um, the, uh, the bricks of trusting people, of course, yeah. uh, in face-to-face conversations. So, you know, in a way, that's what we're looking to simulate. But we're also in this transition time. We're looking at what sort of metaphors are a replacement. So there might be some direct things we take from face-to-face communications, but also some things we might look as metaphors. Um, But also, one thing is, if we were in a holographic telepresence now, um, we would see each other and possibly with headsets on as well. Uh, But more and more, there's becoming the AI to erase the mask and sort of see the face anyway. but one thing is for us to talk with thin air between us. Um, but what if we were wearing the devices where we could see each other, look each other in the eye, see our hand gestures and everything, but also in between us, just like in Iron Man and Avatar and so on, and we could have the top- topology or some sort of graphic of the subject or the object we're talking about. Mm. And we could slice and dice it different ways. We could annotate it, play with it. Um, and it would risk mitigate the conversation or the decision-making. It would make it more fun. It's more embodied. We're more likely to recall the meeting um, and be more productive. Uh, And in enterprise, um, you know, it's oftentimes you're finding 90% reduction in errors and, um, you know, such an increase in safety and so on as well. Mm. So besides the fun, there are also, you know, great returns uh, for enterprise um, in having these conversation dynamics change. With, you know, I mean, it's often quoted, but it's like 65, 70% of people or something are visual learners. So even all of this, this kind of zooming and taking away the visuals, even, you know, we find virtual whiteboarding, it's, it's not the most high tech, but that has made a massive difference in people being able to communicate yeah. complex ideas and conversations yeah. So something like that could just be enormous, I think, in business in terms of potential and exactly, as you say, the actual commercial value of those kinds of tools in allowing people to communicate better and understand these kinds of yeah, bigger ideas and concepts. It's so exciting. Um, so much in here. I, I want to ask you a question that, and I think you're going to have a good one for this, but something we do love asking people is what is something that you believe or know is true that almost no one agrees with you on. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, one one thing might be my bandwagon around the uh, remote work definition, um, but also the relationship of populations to space. Uh, I find very few people uh, are thinking that way just because there's so much sunk cost into the built cities and um, you know there are so many sort of buyers to just extend the land out extend out extend out or build up build up knock down and rebuild um, whereas I think why don't we look at uh, you know Dubai Tel Aviv Vegas uh, all these great cities that have been built in the middle of the desert we got plenty of it out there um, and we got some very clever people. In fact, a lot of the Australians went to build the water infrastructure in Dubai and Saudi Arabia. So, you know, we've got capability on land here now. And also, um, that said, uh, acknowledgement to First Nations. Um, there is so much design and science in a sense uh, that I think we can learn from. Um, and, you know, as a ritual at the start of every day, I think, you know, it'd be great for every business to have some initiation of the day uh, to learn something from uh, First Nations. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and sort of take it as a ritualised way to start the day. Um, but then over time, look at ways where we start valuing uh, their input more and more and they become 
not just uh, more commonly managers, but also leaders. So, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'm not alone in that kind of thought, but um, I like to verbalise it, you know, as much or more than anyone else I know. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's also, I, I'm also, you know, many ways not my own ideas. I like to surround myself with people like yourself who are just great to bounce off with and, um, you know, cook and stir the ideas as a village. Yeah, absolutely. This is, um, I want to just get, get on to one thing just with the time that we've got left as well, because we have kind of talked a bit about what you're doing. I mean, you've touched on a few really exciting projects that you're doing at Humans, but if some people are listening to this alive now or in the recording, how can they reach out to you, find out more about what you're working on? Who are the kinds of companies that you're keen to partner with as well for anyone who's working in enterprise and is actually really excited about bringing maybe more of this to their offering? Absolutely. Um, so my website is there, scottatumens.com. And I think that, uh, you know, we're open to a variety of, of companies. Of course, uh, our first focus is in around sport. Um, and giving people that crazy aha moment. Um, it's sort of like, you know, when we first showed people seeing themselves holographically, it's like they're seeing themselves in a mirror for the first time in their lives after 30, 40, 50 years. It's that, like I was deaf, 98% deaf from age like, seven to 11. And when I started to hear again, um, my goodness, the schoolyard was loud and, and so on. And, and, you know, you see some of those videos on YouTube where people hear for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, it's that profound. And so when people are seeing themselves standing outside their body, looking back at themselves, it is profound. And um, in fact, one of our investors, uh, we filmed him to do a soft launch uh, with TEDx in 2016, the Sydney Opera House. And he not only had that profound, it's almost like an overview effect when you're an astronaut and you look back at Earth and you see the curve. Um, it, it's, it's that and more. Mm. Um, but he also thought, hang on, I'm leaning a bit to one side. And through this, he's had a, a lifetime problem with his back fixed um, with work between his chiro and podiatrist. Um, from observing, looking outside his body and looking back at himself. Wow. So, um, yeah, there's all sorts of profound realisations when stepping outside yourself, looking back. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we've also seen through social media, there's a lot of um, neg negative uh, narrative and dynamics with mm -hmm. um, uh, self and identity and body image. Uh, so I think this could actually be very good for people to, um, appreciate themselves in all shapes and sizes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so uh, with that, we are looking to, besides the sports work, we are looking to um, connect with a, a dozen or so Australian companies mm -hmm. um, with budgets, you know, probably in the 30 to 100K range yeah. uh, who would be having distributed teams mm -hmm. um, who would be interested to connect these teams in this profound way. Um uh, and, uh, you know, be some of the first to sort of trial this photoreal holographic scenario. Cool. All right. That's a that's a big call out. I think that's awesome. Okay. Well, I hope there's 12 companies out there that are pretty excited and want to put themselves forward. That sounds like an absolute bargain, I think, to do something cool like this. Um, Scott, thank you so much for your time today. This has been so much fun. We didn't even get a chance to chat about alter ego, actually. We'll have to have you on to talk about some more things. You've seen that TV yeah. show in the US. <laughs> yeah. Which looks hilarious. What do you think of that? Sorry, just quickly. Yeah, look, it's a great concept. And in, in mm. 2011, uh, my old company, we did the world's first mobile to TV relationship. Yeah. So the mobile now is part of the body, right? So. Yeah. Um, we had a Kia car drive out of your TV. You could pick its colour, you could change it. And the local dealership would then know what to colour, what the model that you wanted, and book test drives and so on. So I, I find it amazing that even still 10 years later, that uh, there are not more of these uh, more uh, enlightening, rewarding experiences between the mobile and TV, even though, of course, a lot of people cut cords or not even had a cord uh, yeah. in some cases. But um, 
yeah, the alter ego with that identity uh, issue, I think, is 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 quite good uh, for some people. Mm. And then I think for others, we also want to see the person as they yeah. are. And and I think through people exposing themselves and performing in the alter ego, they'll get all the encouragement, and then they'll realise actually, my real self is great. Yeah. Let's present this. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Google Alter Ego if you're out there and you haven't checked that out yet. There's some cool videos. I think it's just released in the US. Scott, amazing. Thank you so much. And um, I think this is the beginning of lots of conversations. This is so much fun and I feel like we just scratched the surface. So, um, yeah, Yeah. we'll talk again soon. Thanks for everyone who's tuned in today.